I stand here tonight one day shy of the 100th day of my administration, 100 days since I took the oath of office and lifted my hand off our family Bible and inherited a nation we all did that was in crisis, the worst pandemic in a century, the worst economic crisis since the Great Depression, the worst attack on our democracy since the Civil War. Now, after just 100 days, I can report to the nation, America is on the move again. That was President Biden Wednesday night giving his first speech to a joint session of Congress, laying out an ambitious agenda that would dramatically expand the role of government. He urged lawmakers to pass his plans for universal preschool, free community college, and expanded health care. Not to mention gun control, immigration changes, climate change, voting rights, and much more. His proposals would cost trillions to be paid for by steep tax increases on the wealthy. Already, Biden's proposals have been compared to Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal and Lyndon Johnson's Great Society. But can he get his agenda enacted with the narrowest of Democratic majorities in the Congress and a still-divided country? And how to assess his first 100 days? We'll assess with two distinguished historians who have written extensively about U.S. presidents, Doug Brinkley and Jonathan Alter, on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. So I thought Biden did pretty well in that speech. Uh, it was as much tone as it was substance uh, that I thought gave it the applause it, it has been getting. Uh, he seemed to be talking in a very familiar way to his audience. Uh, he wasn't shouting. There was no bluster. There was no rhetorical overreach. Uh, it was just sort of plain speaking Joe Biden. But I was really struck by um, Dan Baltimore analysis in the Washington Post this morning uh, about the ambitious agenda. Uh, and here's what Balls wrote. Biden had to wait nearly 50 years to achieve his dream of becoming president. In office, he's operating as if he has no time to spare. Throughout his first 100 days and again on Wednesday night, the presentation of his agenda shows he believes there is an urgent need to act and an opportunity to do so, but that he has limited time to get it done. Yeah. Um you know, I, I think that the most surprising thing about the first hundred days of the Biden presidency is how surprising it is. You know, I don't think any of us were really expecting the Joe Biden that we got. We all, all have covered him. Victoria, you worked with him. And, you know, he had this well-deserved image as a kind of centrist, moderate, you know, fairly cautious in his in his instincts. And, you know, he uh, that's not at all uh, how he has governed so far. And I guess the question is why? And, I, you know, I, it's, it's some combination of uh, the Democratic Party has moved pretty far to the left uh, over the past uh, 10, 10 or 15 years. We are in a crisis, not just the pandemic, 
and uh, racial inequities that have been revealed by that pandemic, but um, a crisis that has been a long time in the making with deep uh, economic inequalities in this country. And then some of this just does fuse with who Joe Biden is. You know, he's always been middle class Joe. He's um, always identified with working Americans um, and uh, with labor unions and, and, and all of that. So it, it's, it's sort of all come together, but he seized the moment. And, you know, at the ripe old age of 78, I think it's a little surprising um, uh, to a lot of people. And, you know, when you say he's acting like he's got no time to lose, it might be because he really genuinely feels he has no time to lose. Uh, the 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 cold hard facts are that everyone thinks that the the chances of the House going Republican at the end of the midterms is pretty high. Uh, it's also the year of redistricting, so there's going to be there's been a substantial shift in the number of Democratic seats to Republican states. So I, I think he and the Democrats feel like they've basically got two years to get anything done. One other thing I would say is that, you know, Joe Biden has worked with a lot of Democratic presidents and for some Democratic presidents over the course of his, you know, 50 years in politics. And I think he has learned from their mistakes. And he is on the day that we uh, are recording this podcast. um, He is I think he's actually maybe about to meet with Jimmy Carter in, in Georgia he actually told uh, Mike, our our colleague John Ward, who's a regular guest on Skullduggery, in an interview that John did with him uh, about five years ago. Uh, Biden told him that uh, Jimmy Carter did not aggressively claim credit uh, for the things he'd done, um, and of course, I think he was also believed that Barack Obama, in the wake of the Recovery Act, uh, was not um, aggressively enough uh, claiming credit. And and of course, Donald Trump didn't aggressively claim credit for anything <laughs> yeah. during his uh, tenure yeah. in office. Um, Biden may be trying to correct the mistakes of Carter uh, and um, Obama, or he may be trying to adopt at least one page from Donald Trump's book. Oh, my God, um, but he really needs a better slogan for, you know, if, if FDR had the New Deal and and Lyndon Johnson had great society. Joe Biden has build back better. Hey, he's got to work on that. Yeah, yeah, that one. Uh, that one I don't think is going to fly. But look, before we get uh, to our great guests, uh, uh, John Alter and uh, and Doug Brinkley, we do have to take note of the FBI search of Rudy Giuliani's home and office. Apparently, they are uh, the Southern District in New York is aggressively stepping up its investigation into Giuliani's activities. And uh, this is all his flying around the world and um, colluding with various Ukrainian oligarchs and their minions, many with Russian intelligence ties to try to develop uh, negative information about Hunter Biden and other matters that might help his client, Donald Trump. Uh, It is Look, it is an extraordinary move for the Justice Department to be going after the personal lawyer for the former president of the United States. But on the other hand, given everything we saw and watched over the last four years, um, there clearly are a lot of unanswered questions, shall we say, about Giuliani's activities. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it's unusual uh, to serve subpoenas on any lawyers because of the yeah, risk of, uh, of, of, you know, violating uh, the attorney-client privilege, let alone someone who's been a U.S. attorney, an associate attorney general, and the, pre- and the president's lawyer. I, we don't fully know uh, what they're investigating. I think the, the little we know is they're in- investigating um, violations of the Foreign Agents Registration Act, which until recently was not a um, – a criminal statute that got enforced all that much. I mean, I, I got to say, based on on what's publicly out there, I'm not sure I see that. At least, well, know. but that's my point. Yeah, it, it's got to be a lot more than that. I mean, the right. thing about Giuliani is he's digging up dirt on uh, you know Hunter Biden to help President Trump in his presidential reelection. He is lobbying the U.S. government, trying to get this ambassador fired. And meanwhile, apparently, he's doing all sorts of uh, personal, you know, deals on the side with these with these Ukrainians. So, you know, we don't know what what crimes potentially were committed, but I can certainly imagine something along the lines of, you know, certainly influence peddling, which isn't a crime. But but was there bribery involved? Is there going to be, you know, tax evasion? We don't know. But um, it's pretty unsavory. Um, And the fact that and this does, I think, signal a very, you know, aggressive turn in this investigation to be issuing this many subpoenas. Um, And let me just jump in and say, don't sleep on the fact that not only was Giuliani served with a search warrant, but so, too, was Victoria Tonsing at the same time. Another lawyer, former Department of Justice official and someone who represented Ukrainians and who was kind of very closely and deeply involved in a lot of the kind of Ukraine Trump Giuliani world. The fact that two lawyers uh, were served search warrants on the same day is actually pretty significant. And and I wouldn't I wouldn't, you know, kind of turn up my nose at the Foreign Agent Registration Act as being the kind of one of the drivers for this. You know, Danny, as you mentioned, that was a little uh, enforced and little known provision of the law until four years ago. But it was the provision or one of the provisions that was used against Elliot Brody, an RNC fundraiser who was closely tied to Trump. It was used against. And, and Manafort, Manafort. Sure. and yeah. and Flynn. It was a case that was brought against the uh, the Internet Research. It was one of the charges that was brought against the IRA, the Russian uh, kind of uh, skullduggery organization. Mm-hmm. It has been one of the key levers that's been used by the Department of Justice in the era of Trump and Ukraine. Yeah, no, I I agree. In in Manafort's case, that you know there was a clear foreign principle, uh, the uh, Yanukovych government that he was uh, uh, that yeah. he was working for and not disclosing that or not registering as. So I mean, in in this case, it's not entirely clear to me who the foreign principle would be who is trying to influence U.S. policy that Giuliano was running for. But there's plenty of other stuff here. And I'm going to take a point of privilege by reading just a brief passage from the paperback edition of Russian Roulette. Clydeman, you may remember, uh, we've talked about that book before <laughs> on this show. Because in, um, in the paperback, in the, in the epilogue about the uh, Trump's first impeachment, I talked about how Giuliani was flying all over the world, trying to dig up this dirt on Hunter Biden. And Pose the question. So, who is financing Giuliani's travels and compensating him for his services on behalf of Trump? Because remember, Giuliani had said he was working pro bono. 
uh, as Giuliani would later acknowledge, he had in the summer of 2018 collected $500,000 from an oddly named company called Fraud Guarantee. That was the company owned by Lev Parnas, the Soviet-born businessman in South Florida, who, along with his sidekick, Igor Fruman, was serving as Giuliani's on-the-ground investigator and translator in Ukraine. Well, you know, as you may know, Parnas and Fruman have both been indicted, uh, charged with multiple crimes, including all sorts of frauds. And as for that half a million dollars that Giuliani got, we actually learned some new details on it from another prosecution of one of their co-defendants who's pled guilty, a guy by the name of David Correa. And in the sentencing memo and some of the court documents, they laid out how Correa, on behalf of Parnas and Fruman, had conned some Long Island lawyer and GOP donor to wire half a million bucks to Giuliani to support fraud guarantee, which was a total con. There was no company doing the business that they claimed to be doing. And in his sentencing, the Long Island lawyer, a guy by the name of Giacardo, uh, wrote, frankly, I cannot stomach the fact that these three fraudsters pulled the wool over my eyes. And he's talking about conning them into giving Giuliani a half a million dollars. And of course, it was after Parnas and Fruman were indicted that the investigation into Giuliani really took off because presumably they are they are cooperating and a lot of this is coming from them. We, well, we don't know. They, we don't know the degree to which they are cooperating. I mean, they are still indicted and they are still facing a trial. They may be trying to cut a deal or have begun to cooperate. And that may be why uh, this search took place. We will. But just to. stepping back is just a second yeah. quickly. I mean, the ignominious fall of Rudy Giuliani, you know, who had this storied career as a federal prosecutor going after corrupt politicians and the mafia and Wall Street fraudsters. And uh, of course, you know, was America's mayor um, in the wake of 9-11, gracing Time magazine and Newsweek magazine. And um, and here he is, you know, the FBI raiding his his uh, yeah. Park Avenue home and apartment and taking his uh, cell phone. It's pretty stunning. It, it, it certainly is. All right. Well, um, we have more high minded issues to talk about with more high minded guests. Um, so let's get to it. Okay, we now have with us the aforementioned distinguished historians, both of them friends of Skullduggery, Doug Brinkley and John Alter. Doug and John, welcome back. Thanks, Thanks Mike. Dan. Okay, so we're talking Biden's first 100 days and his speech last night. Doug, start out. Give us your quick take. I thought Joe Biden did an excellent job um, of uh, the speech was well written. The first part of it, when he broke down what, um, you know, they, they our trillions of tax dollars would be going to, I thought was was genius. Um, it then became a little bit of a laundry list, like State of the Union type speeches tend to be. Um, but he, he closed very strong. So I don't think we could have expected more from Joe Biden. It helped that it's been a good hundred days. Uh, Biden has a really interesting cabinet. Um, well, for starters, it was fascinating to watch on TV and see Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi, uh, two women that are going to be written about in history forever behind Biden. 
fact that he's picked an incredible cabinet and it's got them by and large confirmed. And then the rollout, um, the vaccines uh, have gone pretty well. They're starting to become a feeling that we're finally going to work our way out of the COVID-19 crisis. So unusual for this kind of speech, he was able to say, this is what we've accomplished already. And yet much, much more to come. Uh, Did he win over you know, a Mitt Romney or Lisa Murkowski type of Republican? No, I don't think they had any big sea change from hearing Biden. But he was able to, I think, in a public opinion polls where he's standing, let's call him overall at 53, 54 percent, he might get a bump of a point or two up. So it, uh, he did create a little bit of momentum for himself, I thought. Uh, John? I was just struck by how much intimacy he could create in that, you know, cavernous chamber. And and a lot of it was because of COVID. You know, there were only 200 people there instead of the normal raucous, what is it, 1,500, where they're standing up and cheering on the Democratic side and, you know, occasionally maybe on the Republican side if a president says something that appeals to them and they have – they have the uh, Skutniks in the gallery. Skutnik was a guy named Lenny Skutnik, who in 1981, uh, when Reagan had just come in, he rescued some people who were drowning in the Potomac after a plane crash. And, and so he was put in the balcony. And in every state of the union or addressed to Congress since then, there have been these human props that all presidents have used. And they've lent a kind of a, a different quality to the address. Uh, and and uh, you know, last year, if you remember, Rush Limbaugh got the Presidential Medal of Freedom from the balcony. So this time it was just Jill Biden and uh, Kamala's husband. John, this is why you've graduated from journalist to historian. You could take us back to uh, right. so, but, Stocknick. But, but what, I'm, yeah. what, I'm, what I'm saying is that Somehow, Joe Biden was made it sound like a fireside chat. He made it sound as if he was giving a, a, a warm Oval Office address. And you realize that he is better when he is being intimate, as intimate as he can with the American public. And because he's old, he really can't give a big, rollicking, raucous stem winder the way he used to. So this is fortuitous for him. I, yeah, I was going to say, I think that's that's effective uh, because and I wanted to get to sort of some of the historical context here since we have uh, these distinguished historians uh, on the podcast. But it's effective because he actually is delivering a very bold message uh, right. and and some would say an ideological message, but doing it in a way that's that's understated uh, and that's a little more palatable to a broader audience. But I wanted to ask you about the kind of historical context here, because, John, you know, for most of our journalistic careers, uh, I guess really starting with Ronald Reagan, Democrats were in a kind of defensive crouch. They were, you know, castigated as tax and spend liberals and you know, they were always trying to kind of get away from that. Um, and then you had, you know, Clinton finding a middle way and, and uh, you know, the more centrist positions. Um, Biden is leaning in. And, and yeah. And so Biden is really leaning in. The question the question I have for both of you and start with Doug is, is Biden driving history here or is history driving Biden? Well, 
you know, I always go back to Franklin D. Roosevelt and FDR convinced the American people that the federal government is coming to the rescue, that the government's on your side. Uh, Jonathan wrote well a book I, I love about the first 100 days of FDR and just how much got done uh, by Franklin Roosevelt. I've written about isolated way, the Civilian Conservation Corps. But at any rate, it, the New Deal where all of these governments coming to the rescue in the Great Depression and Social Security is going to help you. And then World War II came and the, every, we're all in it together and government's going to uh, win the war, which we eventually did with the Manhattan Project. Um, and then Truman came in. It was still government's your friend. Truman created the CIA and Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Air Force. Um, and then Eisenhower did the interstate highway system, and Eisenhower did NASA and the St. Lawrence Seaway. John F. Kennedy, we're going to put a man to the moon by the end of the decade. Lyndon Johnson, Medicaid and Medicare. Nixon had to be a, a we call him the last of the New Deal presidents. I mean, Nixon went on and created um, Endangered Species Act and um, Environmental Protection Agency was pro-affirmative action. Jimmy Carter with FEMA, Department of Energy, then Reagan. And since 1980, we really haven't had a progressive president. We've all been operating center right, meaning we've lived in the age of Reagan. Uh, Obama certainly did one big progressive thing with the Affordable Care Act, but he was met quickly by the buzzsaw of the Tea Party movement. And Obama told me that he became something like a flood wall president, having to save the heirlooms of LBJ and FDR and the others. And so I think Biden is our first big progressive president that we've had since Lyndon Johnson and what he's doing. And I read a Jonathan Alter article in the New York Times that I agree with. It's in scope, um, very New Deal-like. There are differences between it, but I think there's a great lineage that we can see from FDR to Lyndon Johnson to Joe Biden. If I can, if I can jump in, I just want to ask about the FDR comparison because, you know, FDR's first 100 days, he, he coined the phrase or began using it. I'm struck by, by how fast Biden has jumped into the full scope of the New Deal. We, we often forget that what we think of as the New Deal actually took place over a much longer period of time than the first hundred days. And I'm, I'm curious, Jonathan, if you can talk about the first New Deal versus the second New Deal and how and whether Biden is sort of collapsing the two into one. You know, I, I don't think he is really doing that. So the, the first hundred days, and Doug wrote really well about the Civilian Conservation Corps, which fascinated me. And uh, this was, the to me, the most important, after the rescue of the banks, the most important thing that Roosevelt did in his first hundred days. It, you know, it set the template for all national service and jobs programs to come. And they got 250,000 young people uh, working, uh, planting trees, eventually three billion trees in, you know, by summer of 1933. But the bank rescue in Roosevelt's first 100 days was really more similar to what Obama had to do in 2009. But the real change that is similar is a change in the social contract. So it's, it's thinking in a new way about what the government owes the people when they're in trouble. And what's fascinating to me is that 
Biden has basically added these new clauses to the social contract that relate to what is now being called, you know, the human infrastructure. So instead of just rebuilding roads and bridges, we're going to work on these other things that relate to education and which Roosevelt didn't touch. You know, he wasn't involved in that, although the WPA built a lot of schools, but the, the government in those days wasn't as directly involved in these health and education issues. So where I would agree with you, Victoria, is that Roosevelt, they talked about the three R's, relief, recovery, and reform. And uh, he did some of each in his first 100 days, and Biden is doing the same. So relief was the COVID relief package, $1.9 trillion that he signed. That's already, I calculated, about eight times as much in 1933 dollars as Roosevelt invested uh, in his first 100 days. Then recovery is, you know, this mammoth two-part plan that we're hearing about now. In Roosevelt's case, it would be uh, something like the CCC, which Biden is directly patterning with his uh, Climate Conservation Corps, imitating that. And then reform is the thing that Roosevelt did more of in his first 100 days than Biden is, because he did these structural changes, for instance, the first uh, regulation of Wall Street, uh, Glass-Steagall, these were all in his first 100 days. And Biden is pushing off gun reform, voting reform, and uh, immigration reform, which are really more similar to LBJ's uh, 1965 agenda. He's pushing those off because those require 60 votes and it's it's much tougher. Um, so, but Roosevelt also pushed off, you know, many of his big accomplishments like social security until later in his term. Okay, but look, you and others are, have made the uh, FDR analogy and the LBJ analogy, New Deal and Great Society, but there's a big difference, it seems to me, which is in both cases, Roosevelt and Johnson had very large majorities in Congress and pretty much a national consensus behind what they were trying to do. With obviously there was opposition at times, but but certainly they had a comfortable Democratic majority with them. Biden does not. He's got the barest of majorities and and he's, you know, laying out these incredibly ambitious plans. Uh, you know, if you add the cost of the infrastructure to the American families plan to the stimulus, that's already passed. You're up to nearly six trillion dollars. I mean, is he biting off a lot more than he can chew than the Congress is ever going to go along with and and then risk the failure of not being able to get much of this passed? No. no. No, can I just quickly answer this? Because this is really bugging me about okay. the way this story is being covered. <laughs> All right. So unless Pat Leahy or some other Democratic senator croaks, God forbid, right? Unless that happens or we have a war in the next two months, this thing is happening, Mike. This is going well, I, No mansion is not blowing this thing sky high. I don't and know. I've, 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 I've saw comments from Manchin last night raising some reservations. He's about got reservations in the same way he did about the COVID uh, package. Remember the last 18 hours before the COVID relief package passed, everybody's like, oh, Manchin's going to sink it. He was just doing a star turn. He's got all the leverage. He's got all the power. Let's say that the that the package is closer to two trillion than three trillion. So what? It's still huge. 
Manchin can get everything he wants, and this will still be history making. He's not going to blow up the whole thing. Something will happen. So, and I think Washington can't get its head around this. This thing's on. This thing's happening. Let me let me just break in for a second. Manchin expresses discomfort with Biden's big spending agenda. It's a lot of money, a lot of money. That makes you very uncomfortable. That was Manchin last night. Anyway, yeah, I was going to say, assuming this thing does pass, do you how much of a problem, or do you think it's a problem at all, really, for for Biden uh, to pass this uh, agenda without Republican support in in Republican support in Congress, where he might have it in out in the country? Well, that's it. The uh I agree with what Jonathan said. I think that the reality is this is here. Uh, it's going to happen. Now, it is, though, to, to what Michael says, important to remind everybody that, you know, he does not have that kind of majority Biden that an FDR did in 33 or Lyndon Johnson in 65 on Capitol Hill. No question about it. Massive difference. So Biden is playing high stakes poker here, and he's really following the polls Imagine if he could get up to 58% or something like that. You know, Ronald Reagan used to say, never govern unless you have 50% approval or you're doing something wrong. If we just look at the fact that Biden's going to roll with 58, he's going to get this big package done. It's going to happen. Now, what will the ramifications of it be? That only time could tell. It doesn't, you know, it could be one problem I see coming is how's this money spent? Suddenly money's right. being, you know, um, dispensed and you're going to have Republicans investigating every dollar, every nickel. And then in the midterm elections, Republic with redistricting, as we just saw, Republicans could regain Congress and then try to stymie some of uh of the, what's going to occur this summer. But I think Biden is going for broke, rolling the big dice. I think he sees the number, his moment in history is here, and he's going to stick with public opinion and not trust. He'll do it without a single Republican vote. He just doesn't care at this point, which is surprising because he wanted to be the uniter. But instead, he sees the big opening in history and he's going for it. You know, one one thing Biden does have in common with FDR is a hostile Supreme Court. It took FDR a pretty long time to come around to uh, his court packing proposal, which was not well received. Biden is kind of nosing around it pretty early. How much of an impact do you think the court is going to have on Biden's agenda? That's a great question. Really important. So the court packing, as we call it, took place in 1937 when uh, Roosevelt wanted to go from nine Supreme Court justices to 15. What does that tell you? It, it tells you that FDR had already won. He was reelected. And he was trying to do, he was feeling that the Supreme Court was flummoxing a lot of his New Deal proposals. I'm sure that there are going to be some of these uh, spending issues that are going to go into the courts, that are going to get held up, that are going to be challenged and debated. And the Republicans ally is the clock. They just want to run it out and they need the Supreme. They need to be tied up in lawsuits, slowdowns, uh, find a way to reown and reclaim the narrative. Um, so I think the Supreme Court could on some parts of this intervene, but more, more than likely, it's going to be what Jonathan said when, when somebody dies, a, uh, uh, the Georgia Senate election a year from now, and then they call this illegal and, 
they're going to try to monkey wrench what Biden's going to do any way they can. But alas, I don't think the courts are going to be able to stop what Biden's doing. I don't think the Senate and Congress will. It's just one of those moments uh, where what, what, you know, Mitch McConnell said he didn't want to do business with Barack Obama for eight years. I think Joe Biden's going to tell Mitch, I'm not doing business with you. You're not willing to meet me. Bye. So the bad news is we're still back to a very divided partisan America, and uh, it's only going to get more and more extreme in the coming months. Although I did note his his little uh, Biden's little shout out uh, to McConnell last yeah. night, which was a, which was a nice touch. He's a bunkular um, yeah. Biden in that way. He's like Eisenhower and Reagan or Gerald Ford. There's nothing acerbic about him. And he does actually like people. So he likes Mitch McConnell, but there's not a role for Mitch right now unless Mitch wants to change shift gears really quickly and break this big package up into eight little packages and pass them one at a time. And I don't see that happening. I've got a question for John here because, you know, it strikes me that Biden has been a lot more ambitious and a lot more progressive than a lot of us expected he would be given his long track record in the in the Senate. And so the question is, are all these ambitious proposals, who's driving them? Is it Biden himself or are there people on the White House staff, Ron Klain or others that are pushing him in that in this direction? Or is this just where the Democratic Party is right now? I think it's the last of those. You know, he's not doing anything that he didn't outline during the campaign. It's all in those literally 800 proposals that he had uh, from last year. It's just nobody paid any attention. to. Yeah. And the one thing that he didn't do during the campaign and he's not doing now is he didn't he's not pushing for a uh, single payer system or Medicare for all. So he's been consistent. Yeah, it was crazy in those debates. One after another, the Democratic debates were dominated by this idiotic question of whether we would have Medicare for all. There was never a chance that that was going to happen. Even Ted Kennedy wasn't for that. So the the Democratic Party got off on this issue. And what people didn't recognize is that the whole center of gravity of the party was shifting on other issues like children, like standing up for children. This is what unifies a lot of these policy proposals, standing up for jobs. I, I was fascinated by how much Biden uh, was making himself a small target. When I saw Ted Cruz falling asleep, my reaction was, that's good for Biden. Same way Sleepy Joe, that's a good nickname that Trump gave Biden. It, because if he's boring, if people turned off the TV, it means it's he makes a smaller target. It's easier for him to get uh, more dramatic, progressive ideas that in somebody else's hand, if they were being proposed, say, by a black president, you know, might might uh, arouse more opposition. And so the, the Republicans are flailing here. They're talking about Mr. Potato Head and Dr. Seuss and Major League Baseball. And they, they, they are trying to score on cultural issues. Meanwhile, this rewriting of the American social contract is is happening while they're falling asleep. Now, it will likely be short lived. You know, presidents have to do all their scoring in the first quarter. Really, you know, both Clinton and uh, Obama only had a Democratic Congress for two years. It's one of the reasons why. And Doug has written a lot about Jimmy Carter, you know, like like I have, you know, my my book that I spent recent years working on uh, writing about 
Jimmy Carter, I it, you know realized a really obvious point, which was that he had a Democratic Congress for four years, and Clinton and Obama only had one for two, even though they served eight, and Carter only served four, and that's why. Carter got a lot more accomplished than either Clinton or Obama. So this could be a two-year deal. And it's way premature to compare Joe Biden to Franklin Roosevelt in terms of the overall presidency, because Roosevelt was president for 12 years. But in terms of a debut, a brilliant debut, he is he gets an A. Uh, he, he, he is playing somewhat on their side of the turf, rural broadband. I mean, that's a really great and other issues like that. Charging stations, 500,000 charging stations saying that every time he mentions climate change, he means jobs. This is really smart political. Yeah, I wanted to actually pick up on that because I, I thought I, I was going to ask Doug, you know, who made the point that you got to be over 50 percent uh, to be successful. And, and uh, you know, and that means he's got to appeal to broader constituencies. And did you what did you see in this speech that suggested he was doing that? Climate change was the example I saw. I was struck uh, that he kept calling it a blue collars job plan. And I think he said the word jobs 40 times. And and there was a little bit of almost Trump's America first rhetoric in there by by American the line he had about, you know, uh, wind turbine blades were being made in Beijing. They could be just as easily made in Pittsburgh. What do you think about that? Yes, I thought on the one of the things people forget often about the FDR coming in in 1933, they talk about Wall Street collapsing and they talk about banks foreclosing. But we had a, a environmental disaster in the United States. So uh, we had clear cut all of our trees. We had soil erosion. Um, we had drained all of our wetlands. We had dust bowl drought conditions. It was an environmental disaster zone from poor farming practices and reckless exploitation of natural resources. And so those billions of trees that Jonathan mentioned that the CCC planted, it wasn't a feel-good thing. We had to create windbreaks in the Midwest, you know, woodlots that would break down the wind so the dust bowl, uh, dust blowing would, you know, break. But they, the CCC redid lakes and ponds and FDR sold it a lot as an American first thing. Um, you know, he created as president Franklin D. Roosevelt 800, 800 state parks, 800, because Roosevelt was saying the environmental issue, conservation back then, is in your neighborhood. It's in your backyard. And FDR started talking about economic job, talking about blue collar jobs. Hey, Utah. We'll build a road connecting all your national parks and we'll market Utah as a um, national park state wonderland. And it'll bring you all these jobs. Do you realize that Utah voted for FDR all four times he was on the ballot? He did that with Vermont FDR. He would say, hey, you, there are what we, today you're calling green jobs, ski lifts, winter tourism business, you know. <laughs> And uh, so paralyzed I, president created this. You, yeah. Favorite yeah. fun fact. Utah voted for FDR, but Pennsylvania voted for Herbert Hoover in 1932. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how times change. The, yeah. The point I'm making really, though, is just that I did feel that I think Biden did an effective job, of which is challenging to make climate change seem like a blue collar 
uh, enterprise, that it's going to be a jobs, jobs, jobs winner in where I'm from. I'm from Toledo, Ohio area. How do we convince people in Toledo that climate uh, related is a blue collar winner? I know some farmers in Wood County, Ohio, that are starting to convert to wind power right now. Can that become a movement? I'm going to be in North Dakota this summer where they've had the big oil boom, but there are people saying the wind power is the new boom up there uh, and it will open all these new um, green jobs. So I thought Biden was pretty effective in that way of tying it to American identity and um, blue-collar middle-class values. Just a really quick follow-up for John. Do you think that uh, Biden, uh, if he continues this approach, can sort of splinter the uh, Trump coalition at all? Uh, do you think that's what he's trying to do? And do you think he, he could actually do that to some degree? I think he's definitely trying to do that. Look, you know, for Democrats to win, they don't have to carry rural America. They just have to stop losing 80-20, you know? 70 30 or you know if they can get it down to 60 40 losing 60 40 they're going to win a lot more elections so yes he's trying to play on their side of the field a little bit but this is also who he is it's authentic he was never a breeding volvo driving democrat he was pro- i remember when i profiled him for the new york times magazine in 2016 you know he, he was talking about how he he was annoyed at these people in the Obama White House, who would roll their eyes at the idea of middle-class Joe. He was always proud of being middle-class Joe. He was always an empathetic politician. And both Roosevelt and Biden were ennobled by personal suffering. And even if it's an unconscious thing, the country understands that. These two presidents, that they, they went through hard times. And it hurt them before they were president. You know, Roosevelt was nominated on the fourth ballot. He was seen as being too infirm to be president. Uh, Biden, of course, was seen as being too old. And yet Roosevelt was a big surprise when he came in with this big uh, program after after he was inaugurated. So, you know, the comparisons break down in certain areas. Roosevelt was much more manipulative than Biden is, and that might hurt Biden. Uh, but he does have a lot of experience on Capitol Hill. And it was said of Roosevelt by Oliver Wendell Holmes. Doug might say that he was really talking about Theodore Roosevelt. But, you know, he famously said second class intellect, first class temperament. And the same can be said of Joe Biden. Jimmy Carter was first class intellect, second class temperament. <laughs> yeah. you know, temperament is more important. And, and I think on the margins, like, say, take Joe Manchin for a second, you know, could Barack Obama or Jimmy Carter or some other Democratic president have kept him on the reservation? Might have been harder. I, I think it's going to be really, really hard for Joe Manchin to stab Joe Biden in the back because of Biden's relationships on the Hill. Speaking of Carter, uh, Biden has flown down to Georgia today to meet him. What's right. the signal? What's what is the signal you think Biden is trying to send in that in that trip? So, um, first of all, he's the first successor. And Doug wrote a whole book about uh, Carter's post-presidency, so he knows this better than I do. Biden is the first successor to Jimmy Carter who actually went to Plains to uh, pay homage to uh, Jimmy Carter. He was 
he, he was in bad odor and he had very fraught relationships with Clinton and Obama. But um, Biden was the first Democrat to support him uh, in the Senate in 1976. And they actually had a little bit of an up and down relationship because uh, Biden wanted uh, a bill limiting judges ability to order court order uh, to order busing. And he went to Carter and Carter, when he was president, said, that's just unconstitutional, Joe. And Biden got really pissed off about that. But he supported him against Kennedy in 1980. And I think this, in answer to your question, I think the signal that he's sending relates to human rights. He's trying to restore a morals-based, human rights-based foreign policy and to introduce a moral imperative. And in the same way Carter was elected with a message of healing after Watergate. Biden was elected with a message of healing and uh, the stench has worn off and being associated with Carter is uh, good for him politically. And also he uh, no doubt feels that this might be the last time he ever sees Jimmy Carter who is ailing more than people realize and will turn 97 this year. Okay, but a couple of clouds on the horizon, uh, or at least worth uh, paying some attention to. Biden didn't talk much about the border right. crisis last night. Uh, right. That one, you know, seems to me looms large. If they can't do something to curtail the number of uh, unaccompanied um, uh, kids coming into the country, that's going to be a huge problem. And also on the foreign policy front, you guys know a lot more about Carter than I do, but it was foreign policy that bit Carter in the ass, the Iranian revolution, uh, first and foremost. And it seems to me that there are things Biden, you know, that could loom large here. The pullout of troops from Afghanistan polls well, but what happens if the Taliban does indeed take over the uh, Afghan government and begins a purge and begins executing all the people who worked with us for years and strips women of their rights? How is that going to play? That's one that seems to me to be a very real possibility and something that the Biden folks uh, have to worry about. Doug, what do you think? Well, Michael, you're making a very important point, which is we shouldn't get giddy about Biden's first 100 uh, days. Uh, what I think is remarkable is that he's went big with this um, economic package, bigger than anybody would have thought. But look, the vast external realm of the world and what could happen, I mean, there's so much uncertainty. We all feel it in our own lives. I mean, how does this pandemic uh, play when, when it's hitting India and the plot of Afghanistan, which I applaud only because I'm a novice and think we need to get out of there, but it could start unspooling, as you suggest, and create a um, horrific situation. There's still a lot of uncertainty with what's going on in everywhere from Ireland to um, the future of the European Union. Look at the U.S.-Turkish relationships. Uh, what is Putin actually up to? Uh, I think the summit's a good thing, but that could go sideways any minute. In China, an ominous threat. Uh, I know Kamala Harris will be giving, um, I believe, a speech at the Naval Academy coming up for commencement. And I think that might be an opportunity to try to clarify what our national security is doing right now. I'm, uh, how do we combat cyber terror? Uh, what are our plans? So there are a lot to be filled in, and we might be praising the 100 days of Joe Biden, and next year at this time be looking at the incredibly shrinking president who's mired in 
all sorts of disasters around the world. So you never know. Yeah, I, I just completely agree with that. And uh, presidents are often upended by foreign crises. Uh, but you said something, Mike, that I sure hope the Biden administration is focused on, and that is the people who have helped us in Afghanistan. We don't want one of these Saigon 1975 situations. I, I really hope that our State Department is going to all of the people who've helped us and said, if you want to come to the United States, resettle there, we're going to expedite that. Uh, because if there's, uh, if, if they are massacred, that would be uh, just really horrendous. But they can't get all the women out. And we know what the Taliban thinks of women. So this was a real trade-off. And there will be some uh, very uncomfortable headlines about the way women are treated in Afghanistan uh, coming soon. All right. Well, on that more sobering thought, um, I want to thank both of you guys for an excellent discussion. And um, can I ask, um, uh, you're both prolific authors, Doug, next book, and John, next book. <laughs> I am um, just finishing a book called Silent Spring Revolution, John F. Kennedy, Rachel Carson, and the Great Environmental Awakening. Um, so it's a continuation of my look at environmental history, but with Rachel Carson, Barry Commoner, uh, William O. Douglas, Jack Kennedy being front and center in the narrative. I've got a Barry Commoner story for you. <laughs> oh, you <laughs> he was, tell me. He's an interesting uh, very quickly. I was a young reporter for the college newspaper at Washington University, uh, where Barry Commoner was distinguished professor. And Nixon had just given his first energy speech. And I got assigned to go interview Barry Commoner to get his reaction. And um, he very huffily said, well, have you read my book on the subject? And of course, I hadn't and said, well, you go read the book and then you can come back and interview me. So <laughs> anyway, that sounds like it. Yeah, John. <laughs> um, so I haven't figured out what I'm doing for my next book yet. I'm not as prolific as Doug. Uh, I have a real few are. Few are. Yeah. What about your uh, documentaries? Because you're also a documentary well, filmmaker. Well, I'm, now. yeah. I mean, I'm I'm working on another documentary, and then I'm also launching uh, a newsletter. I'm, I'm going Substack, um, <laughs> and it's. Uh, it's a little bit different than other ones. Uh, it's called Old Goats, Ruminating with Friends. And basically, I'm going to do what you guys do on your podcast with people uh, of a certain age. This is going to be a newsletter where I have um, transcribed conversations with people who have interesting things to say who are uh, over 50. Oh, okay. over fifty. So we well, we both make the cut. We make the yeah. cut as, far as old goats. Some of us make it easily. Right? I'll, be, I'll be I'll be interviewing you guys. Michael actually, Michael actually looks like an old goat. Yeah, <laughs> you guys are OGs. Okay, we don't invite you on to. Uh... Anyway, thanks, guys. Great talk. Thanks. That was great. Okay. okay. Bye. -bye.